Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Jonas Larson, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> it's 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 spectacular to have you in uh, in my humble little little home recording today. Because obviously we did a, a, a virtual webinar yesterday where you were waxing lyrical of all your amazing knowledge of all things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it went well, I guess it was. It oh went, come on, yeah. the, the crowd loved it. Um, but we we should clarify right from the get go, Jonas. What the hell do you do for a job? So I do environmental science um, and I work for Logan City Council. However, everything I'm about to say is my own opinions and separate from my place of work. Cool. So I um, just want to clarify that because cool. I like my job. <laughs> <laughs> it is a cool job. And, and your exact role, I've got to hear from your email signature, it's your water sensitive urban design technical design officer. So before we get into actually what that actually means, we love a good backstory on this podcast. I had a little bit of insight into your backstory yesterday, okay, which yeah. I actually didn't know. And I've known you for quite a, quite mm. a few years now. Um, Spoilers. Yeah. Yesterday. Yeah. So give us your backstory. How, how did you get to be the amazing individual that you are? <laughs> I don't know about amazing, but <laughs> yeah, I guess I've had a kind of an unconventional path mm. to get to like a scientific field. The cards were definitely stacked against me um, since I was little. Really, the main thing I think that stands out that was holding me back a lot was that I was born with uh, cataracts in both of my eyes. I had like, severe visual impairment till about 14. So like navigating that as a kid is quite difficult. Like kids are mean. Mm. Like, <laughs> and also just the, the whole visual impairment thing is just a little inconvenient. <laughs> it's a major inconvenience. Yeah, yeah. But like when you're born with it, you I, like, I didn't know any better. So I didn't realize like how bad it was. I never thought about something better. It's just like just part of life. I didn't go to like a special school to, for like visually impaired people, but I think it might've helped a lot because, it, you know, having cataracts to the age of 14, like it put me behind in school a lot. After I got it fixed, they had to wait for it to mature um, before they, they removed them. I would just listen in class the whole time. So it was wow. just completely audible. Wow. Learning. Yeah. Trying to catch up with high school is just, I was so behind and I wasn't interested. So I was like a dropkick in high school. Mm. <laughs> the, the whole, I didn't do like a, I didn't do the, in Queensland, we call it OP. Mm. I don't know what yeah, the overall position in Queensland. Yeah. yeah to get yeah. into university. Mm. I didn't do that. I did all the dropkick stuff and like, yeah, my job prospects afterwards wasn't very, it wasn't very broad after high school. I just, I did uh, construction laboring for a number of years. 
So like digging holes and lifting bricks and all that stuff, you know, 10 hour days in the sun and like, yeah, it was tough. It was a tough gig. And then, um, what changed my mindset on like, I want to like, I don't want to do this for like 15, 20 years is, um, I met someone who was working in the same position as me as a laborer. He was getting the same pay as me, but he's been laboring for like 20 years. Wow. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I don't want to be you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, ever since my surgery to get the cataracts off, I always had like an environmental spin mm. to it because like I, first time I could like see the world in HD, especially like plants and animals and stuff. And I thought it was so beautiful. So I always in the back of my head was like, man, I really want to like protect and conserve this sort of world that I, the new world that I'm seeing. And like, I just couldn't believe as well, like seeing all these stories that, you know, deforestation and like climate change and all those things. And I was always thinking of that as like something I want to move towards. So enrolled into university after that. So how, how did you enroll into university? Cause it's I had not- to do a TAFE, TAFE thing. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't get an OP. So I yeah. I worked through TAFE. I did like conservation land management or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I got a diploma in that. Getting into university, I was never told of uh, what a bridging course was. So I went from no higher education, like doing pre-vocational maths and these non-OP subjects in high school, no science or anything, then going straight into like all these maths and calculus and stuff. It was just, (laughs) I had to uh, hermit for about two years in my room, catching up from like grade seven maths while learning calculus. It was a tough slog. Pulled it off. I almost failed um, one class. It was a maths class. I struggled the most with the maths. The teacher said, you've failed the last two assignments, which technically means you've failed the course. He gave me like a goal to hit. Then he would give me a passing grade instead of a, a fail. And he said, if I get over 90 something, 95% or 90% on the final exam, he'll give me a passing grade. And so, yeah, I just really knuckled down. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I got it. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't fail any courses at uni and um, that is incredible. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a tough slog. And then because of my history and construction laboring, when I did get like some like supposedly science jobs, I just ended up turning into a laborer because I mm. did laborers work on a graduate's wage mm. better than the laborers they used to hire. So my role in two different companies actually kind of switched switched to a laborer's work while employed as like a scientist. Right. So it was actually just navigating that sort of work workspace as well with that history was, yeah, it's quite difficult. It looked good on my resume, even though I was laboring technically mm. in a science job. That's the long story about my uh, direction to getting to where I am, I guess. That is an incredible story. And like I said, I've known you for a long time and I had no idea about that sort of stuff. And this is for me, this is one of the blessings of this podcast uh, that we do (laughs) is that we get to sort of peek behind the curtain of people's lives. I had no idea around your, any sort of visual impairment, any of your sort of challenges associated with getting into university, et cetera. You know, a lot of people just you know, sail through life, if I'm honest. Yeah, um, yeah. I wouldn't change it for anything because it kind of built my discipline and character mm. as to who I am today. So yeah. I think it's kind of a blessing in disguise. A lot of our listeners don't necessarily work in an environmental professional capacity as such, like as a scientist or engineer, but you know, often tune into the show because they love to protect the environment. They do want to 
do what they can to do so. And a lot of them do have aspirations to work in some sort of capacity like science or engineering yeah. or, or something, whatever. Yeah. Um, but they feel as though it's a bridge too far. Even though I work as an environmental scientist, like I'm not naturally a smart person. If you're thinking about taking a more technical sort of route in your career and stuff like that, and you're thinking like, oh, I'm not smart enough for that, or that's not, you know, I, I could never make that like, you can if you just knuckle down and like mm. just do some, uh, you know, just grind it out for a bit, and then it, it pays dividends. Mm. Like you'd get eventually, you get a really nice job, and like you could have a lot of freedom with what you want to do. And this is kind of where I landed. Let's talk about some of these jobs because I, I, obviously there's a lot of environmental professionals that do listen to our podcast, and a lot of them actually probably would be keen on your perspective. And this is something we've talked about a little bit offline as well around you work for a consultancy for a number of years. A couple of them, yeah. Yeah, a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, and you now work for Logan City Council, which seems like a really good gig. What was your experience of working as a consultant like? Mostly terrible. <laughs> yeah, in what way? I mean, some people, they, they love that consulting life. They, that's for them. And like everyone's different with what they want to do with work. If you value work-life balance, consulting is really difficult to find a role that values that. There's a lot of them that advertise it. I got duped in for a, to a couple of them that advertise work-life balance. You know, we have the best this and that and have all these benefits to help your work-life balance. And then you get in there and it's just like, you got, you got job catfished. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just oh, like one of these consultancies, I actually tried to embody exactly what they were promoting to get me in. The whole team started like turning against me, oh, like, really? oh, you know, blaming me for things because like, management didn't budget enough hours to do something and they expect me to do it in my spare time for free and I'm just like no <laughs> no like <laughs> we're not not doing that anymore like I guess if you're a graduate it'd be hard to put your foot down but once you've got some experience as a consultant you could put your foot down and then look for other opportunities mm. it's kind of what I did uh, we should clarify what a consultant actually does because a lot of people may not be aware it's basically you're 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 charged out at an hourly rate to do work you're basically time is charged out. Now, that might be as part of a, a budget or a proposal or whatever quotation, but fundamentally you get charged out at a certain rate and you get a very small proportion of that money in return. Yeah. Um, often it's substantially lower than your charge out rate. Yeah. Um, but you do have to maintain that pipeline of work because uh, because you basically you're selling your time. And so, you know, one from one week to the next, you need to be basically hopefully or planning ideally to have incoming need for someone to use your time yeah. for some purpose. The almighty huge, billable hours. Yeah, yeah. And, and utilization rates and stuff like that. And from my experience, and I, I had, what, 16 or so years of consultancy. That's um, a long time. That's a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And look, there were some real positives. So I think when you're uh, fresh out of university, it's a great way to develop skills I agree, and yeah. learn things. Um, but yeah, it can be very draining around just your, your time is just so precious to for someone else to be capitalizing yeah. on and i think also to maintain that pipeline of work i wouldn't say put your ethics to one side but often your ethics are really tested because often the projects that do provide the biggest pipeline of work are projects that actually cause harm to the environment if i'm blatantly just yeah yes yeah, so i agree completely yeah uh, and often you know often working with developers for example that don't want to hear about you saying hey don't knock that tree down because there's a koala up there or don't do that development because it's going to pollute the waterways or whatever. So you're often very compromised and that can be very difficult and rightfully so. But some consultancies, if I'm honest, just seem to have no issues or difficulties with that at all, which is probably a bigger concern. So many projects I've been on 
where ethically it's wrong, but we're here to do the job and that job being how can we destroy the environment legally according to all the policies and stuff that's out there. And that's what the consultancies that I was in was there to do is to help assist that. And so it's hard some of these jobs just like from a moral perspective and like it's so against like my environmental moral compass. For a graduate, the only opportunities out there, or majority of them anyway, is consulting roles. So not necessary, but it's a likely path for a lot of new graduates to cut their teeth, so to say, on the these consulting jobs. Like I had to do that. Yeah, I think once you get a couple of years under your belt, you can migrate to a more uh, a job that's more aligned with your environmental morals. But there can be a light at the end of the tunnel. And it has to be said that you're in a great role, from my perspective at least, uh, at Logan City Council. You seem to be almost living the dream around <laughs> doing, you know, combining your experience around, yeah. you know, environmental science, biodiversity, soil science, contaminated land management, et cetera, in this role at, at Logan City Council, as, as I mentioned before, water-sensitive urban design, technical design officer. So we should clarify, what the hell does a water-sensitive urban design technical officer do? <laughs> or at least what do you do? What do I do? I don't <laughs> even know. What I do is like, I think I'm shifting more towards research and development in mm -hmm. a lot of cases and collaboration mm. and um, migrating a lot of like academic knowledge into the industry. Mm. Do, I still do like a bit of project management mm. and stuff like that. What I'm currently working on I get independent of Logan, <laughs> I'm looking at the, I guess, trying to migrate a lot of ecological processes in theory into um, plantless design for green infrastructure, particularly mm -hmm. in uh, bioretention systems. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of people have already learned about bioretention. No, no, no. Look, <laughs> we shouldn't assume any knowledge. Yeah, so yeah. water-sensitive urban design, we should clarify what water-sensitive urban design yeah. is first. So water-sensitive urban design is basically urban design that is water-sensitive. So there's a lot of new development happening in Southeast Queens, a lot of people coming to Southeast Queensland. I mean, why, why not? It's a beautiful part of the world to live in. Yeah. Um, but that means urban sprawl often, so increased urbanisation. Uh, and often uh, as there is a mandatory requirement to actually make these environments more water-sensitive, i.e. reduce potable water demand, reduce wastewater demands. But a key focus area that we uh, look at is reducing the impact from stormwater runoff from these urban environments. And so often we uh, integrate stormwater treatment assets or water-sensitive urban design assets to help mitigate the impacts of urbanisation from uh, urban environments on the waterways. Uh, and there can be other benefits as well, like increased cooling and habitat and biodiversity, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, and one of the most common asset types that we see is bioretention systems. Just to clarify for the listeners who may not be familiar with bioretention systems, what are they? They're basically a garden bed or, or a vegetated environment where stormwater would flow into and then basically drains through the soil profile, through the plant roots, et cetera. And as it does so, it, it it essentially cleans the water. Now, water often percolates through the soil and is collected in under drainage and discharged downstream. They're really, really important in terms of mitigating the impacts of urbanisation if they're used because they slow down water uh, and also remove a whole bunch of pollution when water percolates through the soil itself. We do want them to be thriving ecosystems with lots of plants, lots of trees, lots of you know, birds singing in the trees, whatever. But fundamentally, uh, what we're often seeing in reality is often they're just desert environments, which means they basically have very low stormwater treatment function. So without the plants, without the ability for the soil as water to drain through the filter media, 
they basically just don't work. So that pollution load that comes into the bioretention system often just spills over, over like a, a overflow weir wall, for example, or just basically doesn't get treated. So that pollution load, that, that stormwater volume, just discharges downstream and causes impacts to our waterways. So that's basically what a bioretention system does. And I reckon it would probably be a reasonably big part of Logan City Council's focus around water sensitive design because- Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a lot of new we development. A, yeah. yeah, we got currently 390 bioretention systems and I think it works out to like 400 or 500 incoming. Mm. And, you know, there's like, I wish I could remember the hectares. <laughs> How many they're we got? massive. Like there's it. a lot of hectares coming. Yeah. We got a lot of hectares coming of, of like dedicated green space, which is, you know, a premium in urban environments. Yeah. And um, it's great that this urban green space coming for um you know to help protect the environment particularly aquatic systems and um also because they're vegetated there's opportunity for urban fauna and all that stuff to to engage and and use these these systems as a home and as a food source and uh, my work currently with griffith is uh trying to maximize that dedicated green space mm. to being more ecologically aligned um so a lot of these bioretention systems i don't think there's enough thought behind them in regards to the plants that goes into them mm -hmm. there's a lot of like monocultures of, of like these sedge species structurally they're not diverse as well it's usually just a single layer of instead of like a multi-layered system like you'd see in a forest so like you know a canopy structure and then you got like the smaller trees underneath and you got bushes and shrubs and then under that you'd normally have ground covers and grasses and all that stuff like you know we got hectares and hectares of these things logan throughout queensland i'm not sure how many hectares we'd have of these the count my vision is like seeing the potential of urban ecology if we were to all create these diverse ecological systems within bioretention mm. systems mm. so that involved taking or replicating mimicking some of the ecological processes you'd find in a natural forest mm. and um, migrating the ones that work within a bioretention system to to those areas and because you literally did a webinar on this topic yeah, yesterday, yesterday for yeah, Queensland. so yeah. uh yeah like just a backtrack so the bioretention systems jonas mentioned there's probably about 400 in logan city council already that are owned by council and they're responsible for man managing or maintaining them there's probably one other four or five hundred coming um, you're probably being nice in terms of the description because a lot of them do look very average and they're, yes, they're, there's <laughs> problems with them. There's, there's a lot of problems. And it's a reasonably high proportion, isn't it? That yes. are really having significant issues. They look basically like almost desert-like environments. Yeah. Um, so, and, and they, they take up a lot of space. Like some of them can be what, 2000 square meter plus yeah, systems. Huge. Um, generally for new development areas, they take up about one to 2% of the, of the, of the total development area. Um, and if they look average or don't function properly, it's a humongously lost opportunity, not to mention the fact that they may not be protecting our waterways appropriately. I'm keen to get your perspective from a council person perspective, because one of the, around maintenance, asset maintenance, because one of the big bugbears that we have, or I have personally, is that they, all these assets get put in the ground and they don't get maintained. Yeah. But it's having said that, we recognise it's not easy. So, but what's your perspective around you know your experience or council's experience? Recognising you can't speak on behalf of council. Yeah, just um, my personal experience. My, your personal experience yeah, yeah. around what's it like? All, all these assets are integrated around Logan City. There's more coming in every day and there's some significant deficiencies with them as well. Yeah. What's, what's your experience like? So starting from the, I guess, the top end, like the guidelines, particularly in terms of the biology within these systems, they're a bit lacking in proper science. And that's part of my 
what I'm trying to do is trying to migrate some of the learnings that was figured out, you know, a couple of decades ago into this industry to try and help this problem of uh, plant dieback and plant establishment, and um, which would ultimately reduce the maintenance costs. But tying it back into your your question about my perspective on it, like we don't have the budget to maintain all of these bioretention systems. We pick the good ones to keep them in good good shape ongoing because you know uh, I think it's a lot cheaper to keep something as a steady state than to rebuild it from the ground up. So we've prioritized mostly on the ones that work well and um, that a lot of the ones also that has like visual amenity value for, like parks and stuff like that. We can't maintain all of them because we don't have the funding and like it's almost like we need to <laughs> we need to stop putting them in mm. for a couple maybe a decade or something with the current funding mm. and just to like revegetate these things and like get them up to scratch. I was thinking about it before. It's kind of like if you were to buy a car and you never got it serviced, mm. what will happen to your car? <laughs> like it falls apart. And yeah. it's the same thing. Like these uh green infrastructure do because of the way they're currently designed, like there is a maintenance requirement. I think there's a lot of opportunity to reduce the maintenance and increase the lifespan and you know, sustainability of these things. But right now, like they're designed to be more high maintenance than I think they they mm. need to be. And I think, yeah. But for me, it seems like the stormwater industry is on crazy pills. Like we we keep on putting these assets in the ground to, to serve a, an essential function to protect our waterways yeah. amongst other benefits. And there's a recognition that they're just not going to work no. because yeah. they're not going to get any maintenance because councils have, just haven't got the budget to do so. Yeah. So why do we keep on doing the same thing and expecting a different result? <laughs> that's, a, that's a complex question, but um, yeah, just going on on that in terms of like the sheer abundance of these things. Yeah. Like my personal opinion is that they're like overgeneralized solution air quotes mm. to a uh, complex problem. Like there needs to be more tools, I guess, that we are able to use to try and you know filter and clean this this contaminated stormwater mm. before it enters the creeks and rivers mm. and all that stuff. And there's a lot of tools out there that we could be using, but we just right now the industry is just uh, hovering around these bioretention systems. It's like, bizarre. Yeah, I mean, my work is primarily like in terms of research and development is focused around that only because I, the the sheer legacy that is going to be left with all this infrastructure. I want to try and turn these things into microforests, mm. and so like kind of building off of what has been done. But in going forward, I definitely think that we should be trialing other types of green infrastructure, and that has been tested and proven to work to filter stormwater. Because, um, like I said, like. You can't clean everything with a vegetative yeah. sand filter, which yeah. is what these these things are. Yeah. Like you need you need a diverse, almost a, a treatment train, a, a more detailed treatment train within the green infrastructure to 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 clean yeah. stormwater properly. And even the stuff that you were talking about yesterday in this webinar, like recognizing that these bioretention systems have been put in the ground for the last what thirty years or so. The science or the guidance around their application has almost remain it's, unchanged. It's static. It's like the static, stuff that yeah. you were talking about, and it was really an excellent webinar, a, a really insightful one. But for me, a lot of the things you were talking about were almost like, of course, you know, yeah. like stuff like, oh, we should have uh, reasonably high organic matter content in the soil environment. Well, yeah, yeah no yeah, doubt. Yeah. Uh, we mulch. should be putting mulch. mulch uh, you know? yeah. <laughs> uh, any, anyone 
doing a, a, a their own garden. Yeah, and all the gardeners uh, listening. Yeah. So <laughs> all the gardeners listening. Um, yeah, a lot of practices in our industry is to not mulch these systems and all the gardeners know out there, especially the organic ones, they know the importance of mulch and they know how important it is for plant health and soil health. But here we are in this industry, you know, something that's been figured out half a century ago, you know, hasn't been migrated in the industry yet, which is a major problem with the siloing. And I talked about before off off the podcast Mm. about like people who think they know more than they do. And then it gets to the point where they just don't know how much they don't know. And that's what I said before, um, the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's like, <laughs> I think I got it right this time. Yeah, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, yeah. It's like you don't know how much you don't know, and then you overestimate your confidence in on the topic. But for me, this is the nature of uh, consultancy as well. Like, if you if you want to be a really successful consultant, you have a really high charge out rate. How do you become a? How how do you have a really high charge out rate to be at least perceived as an expert in something? How do you become an expert in something? You look at the world through a very narrow hole, like a straw. And, and you don't look to collaborate, if I'm perfectly honest. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's, that's what what's the, happened. that's what's happened. In and then you industry. create a guideline yep. thinking you know all the things. Yep. And, and you then don't collaborate with source scientists. You don't scientists. collaborate. Yep. And then you end up with our industry where, yeah. where, you know, they don't put enough organic carbon in the soil to establish essential soil functional properties. Mm. And then, you know, there's practices where mulching is like, optional <laughs> like yeah. it's like sometimes discouraged yeah. and like it's just like if you talk to any soil scientist within the last half century like they would they would rip you apart they yeah. rip like like what are you doing or you, you you talk to someone else in an in the same industry in another country like i, I mentioned to you yeah, uh, yesterday yeah. around in there's a, the ewri yeah, sure. water filtration media committee who are a bunch of experts in the u.s getting together to talk about what you're talking about and the stuff that they're doing is is it's simple, but it's ahead of what we're doing. But no one in Australia is actually talking to the guys in the US going, what do you guys think Even about bioretention systems? I haven't yeah. talked to them yet. Yeah. We need to collaborate, especially with people, because the water-sensitive urban design and green infrastructure is such a multidisciplinary mm. field, and yet we don't have enough expert input from the connected experts mm. from outside of the 
water sensitive urban design space. So, well, you just said it. It's a multidisciplinary field. But yeah. how many of these bioretention systems, for example, that you see proposed or specified in, in council in Logan City by consultants have actually taken a multidisciplinary approach? Like, how many times have they have they really just been designed by an engineer with some nominal plants yeah. that they probably can't pronounce and they have no idea what they actually yeah, exactly. mean or look like? And that's gone. Oh, it's from the guideline. It's got to be right. Oh, yeah. that, that filter media. I'm just taking it from the it's guideline. Straight That'll from work. the guideline, yeah. just yeah. Wor- worshiping the holy yeah. guidelines. I guess that's where the, I'm a bit different than a lot of people in this space. Is like I talk about ecology. I talk mm. about soil science. I talk mm. about all these things. I don't know. It's very hard to find other people in this space who talk about them as as much as I have and and value them as much as I have. Like yesterday in the webinar, I'm talking about all this ecological theory, like succession and like. Mm. Uh, niches and like resilience and the importance of diversity mm-hmm. in um, like plant communities, all these things. I don't think those things are mentioned at all in our mm-hmm. in plant plant list design guidelines and stuff like that. And it's definitely lagging behind. What needs to change then? So you're at Logan City Council, you're in this water sensitive design technical uh, officer role, you're inheriting all these bioretention systems. You're saying just stop. I wish. Give us, give us 10 <laughs> yeah, years. I wish. So what do we do? Can we stop development in Logo City? Uh, you know, you're no? not stopping. <laughs> no, not a chance. A lot of people are coming to Logo City just for people's perspective. There is a lot. It's yeah. one of the fastest growing yeah. places. Like, um, unless we stop people coming in, we're not stopping development. And obviously we're a capitalist society. We want growth. We want economic growth. Things get approved, which probably shouldn't get approved. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, bioretention systems that come off, like probably have a second look and it probably shouldn't have been approved. It's very hard to stop the, the ball rolling in terms of development. Just can't stop it. So what do we do with that big ball? Look towards the future and hopefully, you know, the future development is a bit more aligned with uh, environmental practices. So I think that's the importance of trying to change like policy and all these things. Like it's a compromise, I guess. Like obviously when you develop somewhere, you destroy what was there before. But if you can reinstate some of those ecological processes that were there, but in an anthropogenic sort of way or almost artificial way, but using plants and and Mm. plants is central to the ecosystem services, but, you know, just restoring them in, in our green infrastructure or something like that is, is a small win, a small compromise. So that's kind of like what I'm really trying to push for with this bioretention ecology, so to say, is like trying to restore some of those ecosystem services within the dedicated green space. That's. Yeah. It all sounds wonderful. Like people want to, live in environments that are green and yeah. blue and feel nice. There's uh, shading, there's biodiversity, there's clean air, there's clean water. And I think developers want that as well. But time and time again, we see big old developments come through with cookie cutter roads and lots, big houses on tiny lots, mostly yeah. road, Lego very houses. little green space, yeah. uh, block all the trees down and maybe plant some tube stock. In your role at council, how do you sort of act to sort of mitigate that from happening and move towards something that ultimately everyone wants just slowly chipping away at policies yeah yeah i've just amended our ecological design guidelines to be more ecological design i see how far that gets but you know we get a lot of knockback knockback for the stuff we want to push because it gets in the way of development Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me my approach right now um is to just chip away at at the the policies that all the developers follow trying to introduce some uh more on-site filtration of stormwater, promote more greenery and like all these things. One of the things 
I'm trying to push for is a rain garden. It's like mm-hmm. a very low tech version of a biotension mm-hmm. system. Like you run stormwater into a little pit almost, but you fill it with like nice garden plants and stuff like that. And then the, the plants filter out the stormwater and, and then the water infiltrates into your yard instead of down the street. So it's, it's like more on site sort of management of the, of stormwater runoff. Um, so I'm trying to promote more of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, my argument is right now, that I'm pushing is if there's room for garden beds in a development, there's room for these infiltration beds. Well, this, this is the thing around vegetation as well. Like if we're putting trees or grasses or shrubs, they ultimately need water. Yeah. It just makes sense for an impervious area to yeah. drain into that vegetated environment. Yeah, yeah. So right now, from what I see, a lot of these garden beds in developed areas are like raised. Yeah. They're, they're, they're raised beds, almost semi-raised or like it's just has some sort of a retainer around them. So I'm saying do the opposite and you mm. make a little depression mm. and then you plant the same things, mm. but you just plant them in a depression and then you you run stormwater into it and you probably do a little bit of mini swales for the runoff when it does fill up. But then you have certain, like hundreds of liters could be percolated through yeah. the, into the groundwater, through the on-site. And that'll take a huge load off of these bioretention mm-hmm. systems if we were to make that the norm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm trying to push is those little mm-hmm. infiltration beds. Uh, it's so difficult. Yeah, it is. But it is difficult. But look, we're a couple of triagon hippies. Let's face it. Look, <laughs> both got long hair, magnificent <laughs> long hair. I think fundamentally the reason we're in the stormwater industry is because we see it as a massive opportunity to make a significant difference to help protect our environment. That's right. In our industry, there are so many low-hanging fruit, like the lack of maintenance of stormwater treatment assets, you know, just integrating greenery into our, our urban environments are better to help filter and slow down water and help everything basically healthier. Yeah. And increasing livability. All of these things are within very close reach to us. It just needs a little bit more mojo. And from my perspective also, people to challenge the status quo like you're you're doing. Why are we putting in bioretention systems that are basically dry land desert environments and expecting them to function and provide <laughs> biodiversity? You know, we're kidding yeah. ourselves. Let's let's pause. I, I think we do need to pause at least Take a breath. Give it a week. Just say, let's <laughs> a week will be great. <laughs> a week will be good. Uh, and let's look at this biotension media mix. Let's look at the plantings. Let's look at, let's look at how we do our urban environments yeah. in general. There are some really simple things that we could change almost overnight within yeah. our next project yeah. area to make a significant benefit. That's what I'm going for yeah. in my work. Like I've talked a lot about like plant ecology and trying to migrate that, that yeah. in, but also I'm working on trying to fix the filter media specification. Mm. I did some research a couple of years ago about minimal soil organic carbon requirements for plant health and seeing whether or not our filter media guidelines for bioretention systems meet those minimal organic mm. carbon requirements mm. and uh, surprise they don't. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, I don't want to brag, but um, I think it. It, it, should, <laughs> it should be stated like when I found out that discrepancy between the yeah. minimal threshold and yeah. the filter media, I was a graduate and I was only doing a deep dive. It took me about five or six hours of deep diving and I found a fundamental problem yeah. with it. Like, so I was told about bioretention systems, like probably the day before. And then they were like, yes, there's problems with plant establishment. They keep dying, blah, blah, blah. Even after a couple of years, they keep dying. And um, I was like, oh, it sounds like something wrong with the soil. I was just like, it's the first thing you look for when plants die is like mm. the soil. And I was like, okay, I'm going to look at the, the guidelines for 
bioretention soil. And then I looked at the organic matter content because that's just the, there's so many benefits for having organic matter in soil. Like mm. it's just such a, it's probably one of the most important mm. aspects of soil. And then I was like, oh, it looks really, really, really low. I just did some Google Scholar <laughs> for a couple of hours. And then I found this, uh, all these independent researchers mm. and I, I purposely ignored agricultural research. Mm. I just did uh, like ecological research, uh, soil science for ecology. Mm. Both of the fields were mentioning this and it was about a 2% soil organic carbon minimum that's required for a lot of these soil functional properties that plants need. Uh, to grow healthy. So like cation exchange capacity, decent water holding capacity, soil aggregate formation, humus generation, which is like humus is like a very stable form of very decomposed form of uh, organic matter that stays in the soil for a long time. All these things, soil functional properties, start to break down about anything below 2% soil organic carbon. It's, it's like multiple papers. I did a literature review mm. on it and I just compared it to the filter mini specifications and it's below that. So yeah. I'm like, well, there's, there's like one of your big problems is right there. And this is someone as a graduate, That's I looked graduate. six hours yeah. into the, I heard about bioretention. Like I also found out that it's been like this for years, a mm. decade more. Yeah. Hey, I was like, that. why yeah. hasn't someone emailed a soil scientist yeah. <laughs> to have a look and have a good critical review of this? And like, it takes a graduate to do it. I'm just Recognizing like, that these systems have been put on mass, like in the hundreds oh, of thousands across yeah, Australia. Millions of dollars. Billions really. of dollars worth of infrastructure that have ultimately, uh, you call, say, either failure, failure or significantly compromised function. Um, but meanwhile, the same thing happens again and again. I remember going yeah. out to some big developments without mentioning names like North Lakes, uh, that the the systems were a thousand square meter plus and complete desert environments and designed by the experts who, you know, whatever. And they're like, is this the best we can do for a high profile development designed by the experts? Like it's crazy. And this is for me, you never, this is the thing about these podcasts chats is that you never really know how they're going to, you know, you know, travel yeah i have obviously got some little notes here some um question ideas but for me this this whole chat has been quite uplifting it's almost a story of hope when you're in the environmental space like we are it's easy to become depressed and despondent with yeah. the, the face of various environmental indicators basically uh, indicating the ultimate demise of humanity yeah. it's probably but, the most depressing field out there when you're it like, is. Yeah, yeah it is but having said that we're, i believe in many aspects of the environmental industry including stormwater we're close to a, a massive shift and it does require often a new set of eyes or, or a fresh look to, and often from young people uh, with almost very limited background in this area, coming at it with a fresh set of eyes and going, you know, I'm, go I'm seeing it a little bit differently to what you guys are doing. Yeah, for Challenge sure. the status quo. And then from, your, from my perspective, watching you, challenging the status quo, having some offline chats. And all of a sudden, as of yesterday, you had, what, 90, 90 people plus yeah. all across Australia, yeah. uh, leading experts in our industry going, listening to you and going, gee whiz, yeah, I think that makes, sense. Just, that makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, challenging their way of thinking. And I've only been in this space yeah. really for like two and a half years or yeah. something. Like I, I'm new to water sensitive urban design. Yeah. I've done more contaminated land and um, soil science and environmental science than water sensitive urban design. Like I've done... Yeah, I'm actually relatively new. And for me, that's another aspect of hope. Like we all have crappy jobs that we do, particularly when you're fresh out of uh, university or high school and you think, "What? where's this going to lead to? I don't want to be working for the same job 20 years later and in yeah. the same dollars or back breaking my back or, or compromising my ethics. But from my perspective, whilst each of those little experiences might be crappy, they're also a stepping stone oh, yeah. into something else. And 
you never, what's it? I think with Steve Jobs, you, you, when he's looking at life, you, you can't um, join the dots moving forward. You can only join them looking backward. And yeah, all the yeah. challenges and ex- experiences that you've had have basically led to you in to this sure. role. And it's, it must be a great feeling. It, you you it, feel it is. like you're riding a wave. <laughs> a little bit. I mean, I know I was shitting on my consulting experience before. Yeah. Like I said, though, I don't regret it. I, I'd do it all again mm. because it got to me, got me to where I am today, including also, you know, talking about my visual impairments and stuff. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. In the spirit of looking uh, at, at a more broader picture, we focused obviously a lot of, a lot of our discussion on stormwood industry, but let's, let's think a bit more broader about just basically planetary health and, and obviously the fate of humanity. I'm keen to get your perspectives because this is something the that- fate of humanity. The fate of humanity. <laughs> I'm keen to get your perspective around, are you optimistic about- the future for humanity <laughs> and the planet. This. Absolutely. This is going to take a depressing turn, I guess. <laughs> so in the environmental field, I guess there's two groups of people. There's like the optimists mm-hmm. and then the pessimists. Mm-hmm. I fall into the pessimistic perspective because another topic that I read a lot about is like human nature mm-hmm. and the f- effect of like evolution on our everyday decision-making and our general tendencies towards things. And I'm quite certain that and I think this is true for a lot of mammal species out there. Like when there's opportunity to overconsume, mm-hmm. we will do it. And it's very hard to fight against human nature. Mm. And it's in our nature to to overconsume when the opportunity is available. And I think that's kind of what's pushing I think that's what what's pushing us to especially in the first world countries, like mm. to to just really just really take the piss on like on our like lifestyle and like the how much resources we're consuming and like taking advantage of the other countries uh, resources and and migrating it all the way over here and then um having that sort of lifestyle and then when you tell people that we, we need a fundamental shift in our lifestyle they don't want to do it it's a losing battle fighting against human tendencies and i think it's going to be very difficult to achieve a lot of our environmental goals like i see in the news articles consistently that we're not hitting climate targets Mm. we're just you know things are just as bad as they always Mm. have been with my career i'm going to do what i can as best as i Mm. can but also there's a point where you might have to just sit back and like watch watch (laughs) things play out because i'm only a single person and like what i want to do is on my deathbed is know that i did the best i can for like helping the environment even though i know it's going to go to shit. I want to know when I'm dying that I did my best. And if that's in the bush watching in my little sustainability hermit bubble, like that's, that's fine with me. (laughs) Yeah. That's my very depressing outlook on the future. I really respect people who are the optimists, uh, in terms of like, that's what's really driving, I guess, this, this, uh, environmental movement is the optimist. Yeah. Look, I I agree with you. Like, I don't agree with all of what you just said. I'm not looking that's to watch okay. the little bird. No, no, that's that's. But, a- and I'm going to try and give you an optimistic speech, but with a with a fundamental uh, hit of reality as well. Like uh, around, I'm only one person, and I, and I think it's Margaret Mead who's quoted by saying, and I'll get it wrong. Uh, Never doubt the abilities of uh, of a of a group of uh, passionate individuals to change the world. Indeed, oh. it's the only thing that ever has. And that's probably one yeah. of those optimistic speeches that make you feel yeah. good and go, "Oh yeah, <laughs> let's go and whatever." Yeah. But fun- <laughs> but fundamentally. I also uh, rephrase the situation around all evidence is indicating we're on our on our way to absolutely apocalyptic collapse as as humanity. That's why I use the term humanity as opposed to the planet. Uh, yeah, all the ecological indicators, whether you look at global temperatures or um, or 
uh, soil moisture or biodiversity loss, whatever. It's all pretty doom and gloom. Yes. But I look at it and go, what an amazing challenge. Like, where else would you want to be? We are all the weavers of the grand tapestry of history. And I always look at, you know, great moments of history and you think, if you had been on the battlefield of Gallipoli or as part of the French Revolution or picking up the sword and running with Braveheart against those pesky English, you, I'm sure, would have thought that you would have done the noble thing. You would have done the necessary thing as opposed to going along and doing the status quo. Uh, but from my perspective, this is our opportunity. Where else would you want to be in history than facing almost certainly the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced in terms of mm. the environmental challenges, yeah. challenges we face? And it's up to individuals like you and me to actually do pick up the sword and run to the challenge. Oh, um, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm, run, I'm running, yeah. but I know I'm going to die. <laughs> that's and, that, the thing. and that's there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, that's like, the, absolutely. Yeah, to play we're, on that analogy, though, I'm, I'm running hard. Right? We're all dying, baby. <laughs> but uh, it's what we do with that life that uh, yeah. obviously counts. And I think the last thing I'd want to do is cower away. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, even though, like, to use your analogy about, yeah. you know, the battlefield next to Braveheart, yeah. like outnumbered by the English or yeah. whatever, like some people in the, in the army would be optimistic, like, we're, we're going to kill him and we're going to like, you yeah. know, we're going to win this. But I would be the one, it's like, man, this is, this is where I go. This is, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is it, but I'm going to try my best, but this is where it ends. Yeah. So it's kind of like you, it's a, I'm a pessimist, but I'm still mm. I'm still driving it. But I also look at it, and with discussion around the stormwater industry, there's so many low hanging fruits that we could we could change or grab hold of to make a massive difference. Oh, yeah. And yeah, from my sure. perspective, the the ultimately all the environmental challenges come down to one thing, and you touched on it. We're just consuming too much in terms of consuming too much resources, energy, whatever. If we just basically use uh, less, we will have a far more abundant life as well. And it gets back that. Uh, position around lifestyle. Yeah, you can work yourself to the bone doing 12-hour days, five, six days a week as a consultant, whatever. But fundamentally, if that's not sustainable for you long-term, choose a different lifestyle. And and we can. We can. We have this incredible opportunity to choose uh, a less resource-intensive lifestyle. So in my perspective, we're crazy not to do it. And another aspect to that is more efficient use of resources, like with stormwater, there's a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus and all these nitrogen. nutrients in, in, in this water. Like, why aren't we capturing a lot more of it to grow things that are useful, like hardwood products or like other, other plant-based products that, that can be used to build a society, you know, with the contaminants in stormwater, probably nothing, you wouldn't use it to grow anything to consume, but there's so many other plant products that we, we could be using it for. One ecological principle that we can all agree on is from little things, big things grow. And we probably need to land this plane, Jonas. It's been a hell of a chat. Uh, on behalf of uh, the Ocean Protect team and all our amazing listeners, thank you so much for giving up your time today. It's been a hell of a chat. I've oh, loved you. the story. I, I had no idea about the all the dramas you faced, and it's a total credit to yourself. You've managed oh, to overcome thank them. You. So, yeah, well done. Thank you. Boom, boom, shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.